Welcome back to Russian Roulette, the podcast from the Europe, Russia, and Eurasian program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I'm your host, Heather Conley. In this last Russian Roulette episode of the year, I have the honor and pleasure to sit down with Ambassador John Sullivan, U.S. Ambassador to the Russian Federation and former Deputy Secretary of State. We tour the state of U.S.-Russian relations during his tenure as U.S. Ambassador and hear his perspective on the most significant developments in the relationship during this incredibly eventful year. I can't think of a better way to end our final Russian Roulette podcast and prepare for 2021 than a deep dive on U.S.-Russian relations with our man in Moscow. Let's get started. Ambassador Sullivan, thank you so, so much. It is so great that you are with us. Happy holidays. Let me begin with that. And I thought my first question to you is, what has been the greatest highlight of your tenure thus far? And I wonder if a hockey puck is involved in one of those highlight reels. Well, Heather, it's great to speak with you. It's uh, You and I met it's probably a year ago now in in my temporary office at the State Department uh, when I was transitioning from being Deputy Secretary of State to uh, to becoming ambassador and the time this year has just flown by. Personally, there have been a lot of disappointments about my year in the sense of all the restrictions that have been imposed on me. I haven't had my family here. But I've gotten to meet, I've still gotten to meet a number of terrific Russians here in, uh, in Moscow, including a couple of my, uh, my hockey idols. Our current star for the Washington Capitals, Alexander Ovechkin, I got to host. Sasha and his wife at Spaso House for an afternoon on Labor Day weekend. And I've developed a relationship with a uh, prior generation of hockey stars, Hockey Hall of Famer, Olympic gold medalist Slava Fetisov. He and I uh, have gotten to know each other fairly well over this past year. And it's through my Russian friends that they have in turn introduced me to North American NHL stars. So I'm, I'm milking this for all it's worth as a hockey guy from the Boston area. But that would have to be a personal highlight for me. But uh, it really is just a fraction of what I would have expected my social life to have been as ambassador, you know, when I arrived here. And all that was, was shut off uh, starting in March with the, uh, the COVID pandemic. Yeah, I mean, uh, the ambassador uh, to the NHL, I think that could be uh, a next uh, gig, but that sounds fantastic. Yeah, well, if if former Secretary Rice can be as passionate as she is about uh, the NFL and want to be NFL commissioner, uh, the NHL, not as large uh, an enterprise as the NFL, perhaps I can presume as a former deputy secretary, to wax about uh, becoming NHL commissioner someday. I, I can only wish, though. Well, I love it. I think we have your next uh, gig plotted out. Well, and I, I think, you know, in seriousness, hockey diplomacy or, or reaching out when bilateral relations are so tense. Uh, and I think, you know, in, in your series of interviews that you've already given, really talking about how to connect with the Russian people, the the sum of our government to government relationship, you know, that's, that's not the totality of what we're doing here. And I think that is important. And I love that it's your passion. And I think that helps 
uh, even out the the highlights uh, of your tenure because there have been certainly some some low points uh, in your tenure. And I guess for me, um, we have so many issues to talk about. But for me, the low point was obviously the the formal sentencing of Paul Whelan. Could you help us understand, you know, if that was in fact one of the low points of of your time in, in at the embassy? What other points that really were important reflections for you about the the low points in our relationship with Russia? Yeah, Paul's case has been uh, really a, a you you've hit the nail on the head. It's it's a low point for me, both professionally and personally, and a huge huge disappointment that the Russian government or elements of the Russian government have done what what they did to Paul. It's now just two years and a day since he was arrested here in Moscow on on trumped-up charges. Uh, He was set up. It's been well covered in the in the press. I remember sitting in my office at the State Department at the end of 2018 uh, during the holiday season and uh, getting the first word about an American who'd been arrested in uh, in Moscow and talking to Secretary Pompeo about it and Ambassador Huntsman, uh, our ambassador at the time, and, and digging into it. And that's been, been a disappointment. And as passionate as I am about uh, about ice hockey and and uh, the NHL, I'm even more passionate about the obligations of the United States government and someone like me to stand up for Americans. And I don't care what kind of American, any any kind of American, a hyphenated American, a Russian American, an American's an American, and he deserves the strongest advocacy that can possibly be made on his or her behalf. And we've tried to do that here, uh, both this mission and across across the U.S. government. A lot of colleagues across the U.S. government, Roger Karstens, uh, my friend back in D.C., is our special presidential envoy uh, addressing these issues. But the, the bigger problem, uh, of course, there's the human tragedy, and it, it really hits me hard because I've gotten to know Paul's family so well. His um, his sister and brothers and his elderly parents uh, and Paul himself. I've been, I've visited him in in multiple uh, correctional facilities here in uh, in Russia. But there's a bigger problem, Heather, about what this says about certain elements of the Russian government willing to use their security services, law enforcement, and judiciary in ways that are just difficult for. An American to understand how a judicial system can be turned in the way it has in Paul's case with a secret trial to convict him and then go public with requests that that this innocent American be then traded for Russians who have been convicted in the U.S. judicial system of grave felonies and sentenced to lengthy prison terms. And, and unfortunately, Paul's case was just the first of several. We've had another, another, uh, an American, Trevor Reed, a uh, young man, a former Marine like Paul, arrested uh, and convicted on charges that even the judge in the case, when the evidence was being presented in court, laughed at. Uh, it was literally a laughable case that in not the type of case that Paul's been brought up on. Paul's been charged with, with espionage. Trevor was charged with, uh, with assaulting a, uh, a police officer, and there was, 
there was no evidence to convict him and what what evidence there was in court was was laughable and yet he's been sentenced to nine years in prison and it makes me cautious about uh, what that says for Americans who visit here and how the system could be could be turned against him if it were in the interests of some elements of the Russian government who wanted uh, something from the United States and the United States government, particularly with regard to Russian criminals who have been convicted in the U.S. judicial system. So that's been been a low light, a disappointment on my behalf that we haven't been more successful in our advocacy to get Paul and Trevor and and some other uh, Americans released who have really been treated unfairly, unjustly by the Russian uh, Russian judicial system. Yeah, I mean, I, I think to, you know, obviously in this this holiday season, our our thoughts and our prayers and our hearts go out to the Whelan and the Reed family, and the the, the, the pawn taking is really it speaks to the the depth of the crisis of the relationship. Um, and you're absolutely right. Uh, you have to think twice uh, as an American if you are going to travel there and how to do that safely, which doesn't encourage us to keep these dialogues and exchanges going, which are so vital to maintaining the relationship. But I think what you finally said to reiterate, you know, the State Department is America's advocate overseas. For We fight for the safety of Americans. We advocate for their rights, um, their business opportunities. And it, it's an incredible thing that the State Department does. And we're, we're grateful that you are fighting for them and all Americans uh, in Russia. Thank well, you so, so much oh, for that. You, you're welcome, Heather. If I could add just one more observation, you know, thinking about the broader picture of the, the relationship today uh, between the United States and Russia and looking back over the decades, uh, centuries since our two countries, uh, Russia, uh, originally the Russian Empire and the United States, established diplomatic relations back in the uh, early 19th centuries, and, and particularly during the Soviet era and, and the Cold War. I mean, one difference, and we, we talk about comparisons with the relationship now between the relation, with comparing it with the relationship back during the uh, the height of the uh, the Cold War, one fairly significant difference is the number of connections between Russia and the United States, Russian people and Americans. So we have over a thousand U.S. companies doing business here in Russia now. We didn't have a thousand U.S. companies doing business in Russia in uh, the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, right? It was only at the very end of the Soviet area where a brave hockey player like Slava Fetisov uh, could, uh, with the help of my friend Lula Morello, who was then the general manager of the New Jersey Devils, escape to play in, uh, in the NHL from the, uh, from the Soviet Union. And now, of course, it's much, much different. But the risk, though, when I look at it in thinking about Paul's case, is we have many more Americans here now doing business. And so it's, uh, that's become a worry for me, the need for us to be on our toes here, providing American citizen services and being advocates for U.S. citizens here, whether it's on business, for family, social, travel, tourism, whatever. It's, uh, it's a big concern of mine. No, absolutely. And I think speaking uh, very importantly of, of the U.S.-Russian business community and relationship, 
events surrounding Michael Calvi. And here you had an American who's, you know, 20 years in Russia, well regarded, getting caught up in an increasingly uncertain business environment within Russia also doesn't encourage those that feel like they have some confidence in navigating uh, a more difficult domestic political environment. Now, even those who fought were the best at it have have gotten caught up in something that's really beyond their power as well. Absolutely. So I'd love to move to another subject, something that you began uh, when you were Deputy Secretary of State. And uh, I guess we thought, uh, had some positive views that you would see it through in your tenure uh, in, in Moscow, was uh, extending the New START Treaty and the arms control agenda, which, again, we thought rolling into the fall that uh, there was some hope for that extension. And then things stopped around the U.S. Uh, election. And now it looks like uh, the Biden administration, the incoming Biden administration will manage that. Help us understand what's important about that, uh, the arms control dialogue as a pillar of U.S.-Russian relations. Well, it's been a pillar of U.S.-Russia relations, U.S.-Soviet relations, and one that we don't have a choice about engaging with the Russian Federation in discussions on these issues as going back decades as two nuclear superpowers soon to be joined by an aggress- the aggressive growth of uh, the People's Republic of China and the growth of, of their military and particularly their nuclear weapons systems. So arms control and strategic discussions with Russia has been in this administration has, has been in all previous post-World War II presidencies, administrations, uh, a top priority. We've had some disappointments in this area, particularly with respect to when I was Deputy Secretary of State. Our inability to engage with the Russian government on their clear violation of the, the INF Treaty on Intermediate Nuclear forces, something that the Obama administration had uh, sought to engage with uh, the Russian government on. We did at the start of the uh, the Trump administration, and we reached a point at which, with a, with a treaty that was uh, in effect between two parties, the United States and Russia, if one of them breaches the treaty and develops a weapon system that is in clear violation of it, and the United States continues for years to try to engage the Russians in a discussion about this, and the Russian government wouldn't even admit that the system existed. It seemed to us, and the president agreed, that it didn't make sense for us to consider ourselves bound by that treaty if our counterparty was not bound. And we made the case over a substantial period of time, led quite ably by Secretary Pompeo in making the case to all of our NATO allies about why we were we were doing what we were doing with the, the INF Treaty. And it was a decision that NATO allies backed, but it led to false allegations by the Russians and the Russian side that, that the United States was, I think their favorite talking point is, dismantling the nuclear arms control architecture. And in fact, uh, we were seeking to abide and have the Russians abide by the INF Treaty. They weren't. 
leads now into the New START discussions, which, as you noted, I, uh, as Deputy Secretary, met with Deputy Foreign Minister Ryabkov back in the summer of 2019 in Geneva, where New START was among the topics of discussion. And we've been engaged since then. I succeeded by uh, my friend Marshall Billingsley, who uh, has been this president's negotiator on uh, on New Start and, and arms control, and the dialogue has gone has been been pretty faithfully covered in the press, with the U.S. position as ably laid out by Marshall, quite sensibly focused on an extension of New Start, and this is I'm fast forwarding now through 2020 up to through the summer and into the fall, this, the most recent discussions with the Russian government between, between Marshall and uh, Deputy Foreign Minister Ryabkov focused on an extension of New START, but two points that the United States has raised that I raised originally a year and a half or more ago and Marshall had focused on is tightening up the verification mechanisms that were in the New START treaty, gaps where we thought that verification could be improved. And we had significant discussions with the Russians over uh, inclusion of China, not in the New START Treaty or an extension of the New START Treaty. We weren't saying that China needed to sign the agreement as a, as a third signatory, but merely that we wanted the Chinese to be at the table in the discussions on arms control, for that nuclear arms control agenda that we would have and discussion that we would have on what would, what would follow New START. Uh, and the response by the Russian government was, in effect, we understand your position on China. We don't necessarily disagree with it. Uh, we think it would be useful to engage the Chinese government, but we have bad news for you, United States. The Chinese don't want to engage in those discussions with us, the, the two of us, and we're not going to expend any political capital uh, to ask them to do so. So there's, there was that back and forth, and it ultimately wasn't resolved uh, before the election. And I think since then, you know, Marshall has made numerous efforts to try to re-engage with the Russian government. Uh, which which really haven't been accepted. And uh, my perception is that the Russians are uh, looking at the statements that the president-elect has made about New START and an extension of New START. And, you know, I, I think they're, they're focused there. I'm not optimistic that there's going to be much progress between the current administration, the Trump administration, and Russia on New START between now and, and January 20th. Yeah, it's uh, it's been a long process, but the timeline is short. The start will end without an extension on February the 5th of next year. So we know there's going to be some movement as quickly as possible. Ambassador, let me turn to uh, something that began right as you arrived in Moscow, which is truly historic. And, that, and it began with President Putin's annual New Year's address to the Russian people, and he announced some very important changes to the Russian constitution, which then precipitated the collapse of the, the Russian government. Uh, then Prime Minister uh, Medvedev resigned, and that's led off a series of really important changes that talks about 
Vladimir Putin's future uh, as as leader of the country potentially to to 2036. And part of that, of course, uh, was accompanied by an internal crackdown that we're seeing today and something that you've been responding to uh, quite strenuously on the Foreign Agent Act. Speak to us a bit about what these constitutional changes mean for and their impact on U.S.-Russian relations uh, as we look towards next year's Duma elections. Tell me the trends that you're seeing. Help us analyze these changes that suggest that Vladimir Putin could, if he wish, remain in power to 2036. And these recent changes that basically have he and his family and, you know, immunity from prosecution. What does all of this mean? Well, it was just as I was arriving, transitioning uh, here to the embassy, we had the dissolution of the uh, prior government and new Prime Minister Mishustin appointed and the rollout of the, uh, the constitutional reforms that were being proposed and in fact were adopted as a legal matter uh, in the spring became in effect legally effective there was a vote, a popular vote, uh, that was, was taken at end of June on these provisions. And there were a whole raft of changes. You've cited them among the most significant, the rewriting of the rules on term limits for the office of president of the Russian Federation that basically zeroed out President Putin's prior service as president. And so the Constitution has a two-term limit, uh, but his prior service wasn't counted, so he, uh, if he were to choose to do so, running in 2024, could serve for two more six-year terms through 2036. But there were a lot of other provisions among the, uh, the constitutional reforms, many of which are now being implemented by the Duma, And some of them focus on foreign agents and the broad definition that that term is being given. It has, unfortunately, and this is what directly impacts the United States and the United States government, restrictions on uh, on foreign agents, uh, in particular uh, legal changes that are being made, would impose fairly onerous obligations on U.S.-affiliated media entities like Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty, and only those entities, not other, at least those are the only ones that have been listed as being subject to, for example, requirements that any publication, video publication, for example, by Radio Free Europe, for example, would have to include a disclaimer run in huge type for a long period of time at the beginning of any media piece that said that it was uh, paid for by the United States. I mean, and it has to run for a really long period of time. We're all used to the political disclaimers that are required in U.S. campaign ads where uh, the candidate says, uh, I'm Heather Conley running for Congress and I paid for this ad, right, at the end. Well, these are disclaimers that would be much longer, like 20 seconds long in a, you know, in a two-minute piece. And it's got to say, in effect, this is U.S. propaganda. Don't believe it. And we've objected quite strenuously to these. And I said this in a, in a recent interview that I did with Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty uh, reporter who's based in, 
in Kiev. But all of this stems from changes in law that, that started with the constitutional reforms are now being implemented by the Duma, and in my opinion are trying to shape the political landscape for the Duma elections next year in 2021, which are a big political event here and of particular interest to the current presidential administration. And so I think what we're seeing is with the, uh, the crackdown on so-called foreign agents, and particularly media entities, and that's defined very broadly. It's not just a media company, and it's not just reporters or writers or editors. It could be stringers who occasionally, you know, submit a piece for publication. Russian citizens, for example, and there are significant criminal penalties for not complying with these new laws. I think what we're seeing basically is a shrinking of the uh, of the political space and trying to control uh, the political landscape in advance of the Duma elections in 2021, which will in turn shape and I, I you know will will affect I assume in some way at least President Putin's decision about whether to run for re-election in 2024. He says he hasn't made up his mind. Yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. We're seeing this uh, really extraordinary crackdown. Uh, and even the foreign agents law, just not for media or the organization, it seems to me they're going after individuals, anyone uh, that's opposing the regime now. Um, you, you can just feel that. And of course, all of this really, you know, the poisoning of Alexei Navalny this summer really in some ways highlighted the nervousness of this regime. And now you see the poisoning of European-Russian relations because of, of the poisoning, which again, even continues this week with news that a request that uh, Navalny return. Navalny wants to return, but to continue his um, his political opposition work, uh, not to go to jail. Help us put the Alexei Navalny poisoning, which continued to deepen tensions between the United States and Russia, between Europe and Russia, put the Navalny poisoning into, the, into that context. Well, you know, when I, when I look back on the late summer, I mean, it was just one thing after another. We had the failed election, the corrupt election in Belarus at the beginning of August, and it was just one darn thing after another. Then there was the Navalny poisoning and, you know, continuing into the fall, uh, we've had, and it hasn't gone as sideways as the election did in, in Belarus, but we were concerned about the election in Moldova. And then, of course, there was the violence and uh, in the conflict in Nagorno-Karabakh. It's been a an eventful late summer and fall and now start of early winter. And the Navalny case uh, has been among the most glaring and problematic from my perspective. It's poisoned in many, and I, 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 the, no pun intended, it really has poisoned the, uh, the atmosphere. I mean, just the lack of trust between, and this isn't a bilateral U.S.-Russia issue. It's not a U.S., it's, excuse me, it's not a German-Russia issue either. I think at the start of this, the, the Russian government was was, was looking to make this a, uh, an issue between Russia and Germany. This is a multilateral issue with a lot of countries concerned, A, about the treatment of such a prominent Russian political figure that members of the Russian government refuse to even mention his name, uh, Alexei Navalny, and, you know, trying to, to murder him with a banned chemical weapon. 
it's uh, it's not only a reprise of of what happened in Salisbury, but it's it's a further sign of the lack of political freedom here in Russia, and the the reduced space for anyone who has views that some elements of the Russian government disagree with. Navalny himself is is a patriotic Russian nationalist, but he is not in sync with the views of the uh, the current administration, and uh, I think they view him as a threat. It's another in a whole series of things that have happened this year that have affected the trust uh, and the relationship between the United States and Russia, and between, and it's not just Europe, other countries as well, and uh, and Russia. Yeah, I would just add, uh, you know, the government change in Kyrgyzstan, the ongoing protest in Habarovsk because of a change uh, in leadership there that the Kremlin uh, instigated. I jokingly call this sort of Russia's ring of fire that you have all of this unrest internally and in the neighborhood. And then you add on top of that the domestic uncertainty. It really, you begin to see a regime that I think is focusing now on self-isolation to protect itself uh, as it makes these important changes and and prepares for next year's um, elections. And we'll we'll put those in quotes. So I think this is, Ambassador, you may have had a short tenure, but my goodness, could you have packed any more, you know, incredible events? And we didn't even talk about uh, the cyber attacks uh, that the Department of Homeland Security is just, you know, announcing and unfolding here in the United States. So an incredibly monumentous year. We couldn't even get to all of the issues, but because we're at the end of the year, it is the time for predictions, predictions for 2021 as we uh, gratefully wave goodbye to 2020. So I thought I would ask you to predict for us. Um, so what do you predict uh, U.S.-Russian relations will be in 2021? And what are your predictions for Russia itself in this uh, upcoming year that, as you noted, will be really important politically for the country, but also internally as we see this con- continued crackdown and consolidation. So we won't hold him to you, but we'd welcome your predictions. Well, if I could broaden the aperture a little bit, it's we're focused on this one year, 2020, which has not been, has, has really been a terrible year in so many ways, generally, globally, and in particular in U.S., Russia relations, but I like to step back and think about all of the changes that have happened both in Russia, or before that, the Soviet Union or the Commonwealth of Independent States, uh, just in the last 30 years. The ups and downs, uh, the enthusiasm for uh, for U.S.-Russia relations uh, with the, the advent of, of Boris Yeltsin, my former boss, our former boss, President George W. Bush, you know, his early meetings with Putin and looking into his soul and all that. I mean, we've had ups and downs. And I guess ultimately, and this may be a reflection of how much I, uh, I'm enamored of Russia and the Russian people, I guess I'm more optimistic uh, than one might think based on the terrible year that we've had in, in 2020, that ultimately the arc of the relationship between the United States and Russia will get back on a better course. We've not succeeded in this administration in the last four years in stopping both sides from digging 
the hole that we're in, and principally the Russian side, from digging the hole that we're in. But what I said earlier about the relationships between the United States and Russia, not focused on the governments, but between the two countries and our peoples, the business relationships, things can change and can change quickly. I'm not predicting that quick a change in U.S.-Russia relations in 2021, but like a man who has become my friend because I've spent a lot of time with him over the last year, Michael Calvi, if you asked him today, he wants to stay and continue to do business here despite what he's been through. I'm ultimately bullish on Russia and the Russian people, and eventually there will be a government that we can do business with. There are some issues, as as I said earlier on, Heather, that you, you know as well as anyone that we just, we have to engage with Russia on, no matter what we think of the current administration. They're a permanent member of the Security Council with a veto. They have a large nuclear arsenal, et cetera, all those issues. But I, I guess I'm ultimately a big fan of Russia and the Russian people. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to come here as ambassador. I came in with eyes wide open. Things weren't rosy back in, in December of 2019 when you and I uh, met at the State Department as I was coming here. But I have such affection for, for Russia and the Russian people that I wanted to come. I wanted to stay, come here and do all I can to try to, uh, to improve in areas where I can. It hasn't, there haven't been that many. But we have to confront Russia where uh, the Russian government, where we disagree and we unfortunately disagree vigorously in many areas and that list is is growing longer. So my prediction is long term, a positive one for U.S.-Russia relations. I'm not as optimistic about how that's going to play out in 2021, however. Well, I'm so grateful to you that you sort of you ended on that high note that you always need. Uh, I think, particularly during this year, uh, you know, stepping back, taking the pause, the importance of the relationship, but you know, obviously acknowledging the deep, deep challenges uh, that that are, are in front of us, and understanding that you know, obviously, we didn't even talk about the impact of the global pandemic uh, on in Russia itself. New statistics show it has been so devastating as it's been devastating for the United States and others. So in a, in a year that has been horrible, I'm so grateful that you remain positive, that uh, you went into this eyes wide open in, in service uh, to your country and to help where you can, but to be uh, insistent and strong where you needed to be, particularly for those uh, Americans that are now um, imprisoned in Russia. So thank you, Ambassador Sullivan. What a great privilege it was to speak with you uh, today and helping us unpack a lot of challenging issues and complications. And uh, as I said, I think uh, my little message to the NHL, they have an ambassador, a diplomat in waiting, should they so need uh, your services. So thank you again. You're, 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 you're most welcome, Heather. It was really my pleasure. And I hope it's a conversation we can continue in, in 2021. And I have to say, if, if the NFL hasn't, uh, hasn't seen the light and picked up such a talent as, uh, as former Secretary Rice, I'm, I'm, I've, I've got no hope with the, uh, the NHL. Uh, so I'm not, not holding my breath for that. But thanks to you. We'll, we'll make our plug. We'll make our plug. <laughs> Have a wonderful uh, uh, holiday, Happy New Year, and uh, all the best to you and, and your family. 
Yes. Happy New Year. Thank you so much, Ambassador Sullivan, and our very best to everyone uh, at the embassy. Thank you so much. That's it for our last episode of 2020. We are very thankful to Ambassador Sullivan for joining us despite his busy schedule and the holiday season. You can find a link to his bio in the show notes. This year has been quite a journey, and I hope our listeners will get a nice long holiday break. We have many exciting projects and conversations planned for 2021, so please keep an eye out for our announcements by subscribing to our mailing list and following us on at CSIS Russia and at CSIS Europe. For our listeners who haven't already, please consider subscribing to the podcast on iTunes and are leaving us a rating and review as well. If you're not an iTunes user, you can stream the podcast on Spotify. And again, keep spreading the word. And finally, I'd like to take the time to thank everyone who works so hard to make this podcast happen, including our fantastic producer, research associate, and program manager, Roxana Gabudilina, and the entire CSIS External Relations and iLab team. Thank you again for listening and wishing you all a happy, safe, and healthy new year.